This podcast is on strategic narrative. First, we're going to discuss a special kind of narrative, a foundational narrative. Then we will discuss narratives in the field of strategy and national security. Narrative, that is information that's made meaningful in the form of narrative, is arguably a foundation of civilization. Leaders convincing people to follow them and not to follow others. It certainly predates states and armies and remains a central imperative of power. There are a number of studies in management in the social sciences of archaeology, anthropology, paleoanthropology, as well as neurobiology that suggest we can only know, directly lead, and deeply trust at most about 150 people at any given point in time. This is makes up a small clan, if you will. There was and is no biological mechanism that has evolved in the human brain to be able to directly manage or to deeply trust at any given point in time more than 150 people. But something interesting happened 70,000 years ago, known by some scholars as the cognitive revolution and by some historians dubbed as the dawn of human history. This was the ability to communicate abstract stories. We already had language, we already had the ability to tell literal stories as our cousin species like the Neanderthals and Homo erectus already had. So again, this came after the ability to communicate, this came after spoken language, after tools, weapons, and even medicine. Foundational narratives, they allowed people to unite beyond the clan unite around ideas, around fiction, fictional ideas or myths beyond the clan. They also allowed clans to be more united. So strangers could bind together in what we call today social contracts. This is the foundation from which we get statecraft, warfare, defense, and strategy. As neurobiologist Miguel Nicholas says, all of the complexity in the brain, that is the, how the foundational narratives affect our subconscious, which I'll talk more about in a minute, they generate all the attributes that define the human condition, the entirety of our culture, history-making, and civilization. These foundational narratives, also sometimes called sacred values, imagined realities, imagined communities, or national mythologies, these foundational narratives, they fueled psychological orders, allowing people to believe in ideas that don't exist in nature, to believe in intangible ideas like nation and state, like money and law, order, a shared history, and even equal rights. These foundational narratives fueled psychological orders, allowing many people to believe in ideas that don't exist anywhere in nature, like I said, but it allowed the first civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia. It allowed the first empires and eventually the post-Westphalian Westphalian state system that we have more or less today. At its most extreme, this foundational narrative warfare, if you will, looks much like it does today as it did even 70,000 years ago. And that is governments strengthening their own foundational narratives and trying to weaken those of adversaries, trying to influence through narratives adversaries 
populations to abandon their own foundational narratives, at the very least to weaken adversary foundational narratives. So once again, before 68,000 BC, Homo sapiens were mostly grouped into clans or even subclans known as bands by some anthropologists. That is, a clan leader could only lead about 150 people at any given point in time. They had to know everybody's name, their background, to be able to trust them in order for them to be able to come together and to collectively get things done, to secure themselves and hunt, etc. But with foundational narratives, we see such as today, that leaders can unite, in some cases, people in the tens of millions. Some go so far as to say storytelling, especially abstract storytelling or narratives, are not just something we do, it's who we are. Nick Pizzalto, a screenwriter, suggests that we're all born storytellers. It's part of our species. We are certainly biologically tuned to devour some types of compelling abstract storytelling. There's a number of neuromodulators and hormones that activate during compelling abstract storytelling, that increase trust and sympathy, that heighten our memory and our visceral investment, not just in the story, not just in the characters in the story, but also the storytellers themselves. Once we create foundational narratives, they then need to be defended and protected. As Henry Kissinger says in our reading for this week, those that are under assault are challenged to physically defend themselves, but at the same time, they're very often challenged to defend the basic assumptions of their way of life. Huval Hariri, historian from Israel, suggests that a foundational narrative, what he calls an imagined order, is always in danger of collapse. It is inherently fragile because it depends upon myths, and myths vanish once people stop believing in them. Now, this can erode over time. This can also happen very quickly and dramatically, as happened on November 9th, 1989, when the Berlin Wall started to come down. You had GDR Stasi employees, that is, employees of the intelligence service of within eastern Berlin, that literally walked off their posts immediately when they heard the wall was coming down, took off their uniform, went back to their family, perhaps tried to uh, make amends and catch up with family that were in western Berlin. This happened two months before the gov that government's formal disillusion. What some historians suggest is that the foundational narratives in Eastern Berlin were weak, even those that worked for the government in, in the intelligence services or security services. And once the threat of force, the threat of violence, the threat of arrest, torture, and death was gone, people simply walked away from the foundations that buttressed this entire state system or government system. So foundational narratives are inherently fragile. This is why we see throughout the world strategic leaders strengthening the foundational narratives within their society, within their government, within bureaucracies, within agencies, within their services. Strengthen foundational narratives through culture, through education, ritual, rites, through law. When successful, a foundational narrative will be internalized by your population, by your citizens, by your soldiers. 
to the point where they will reject and become physically repulsed by intellectual attacks against the basic assumptions behind your foundational narratives. A number of studies in neuroscience suggest that a brain may act in a similar fashion to an intellectual attack against your foundational principles, against your foundational values, as it does to a physical attack. You have your adrenaline pumping, you're in that fight or flight mode when someone oftentimes tries to attack, again, the foundational values that you hold near and dear to your heart. When successful foundational narratives will affect the neural architecture of the brains of your citizens. Foundational narratives shape how we see and we sense the world. The brain does receive signals, but not in a vacuum. In fact, this is a very small part of the story on how we build our own realities, how we view the world within our brain that's stuck inside our skull, receiving very, frankly, few wavelengths. Instead of our brain just receiving uh, signals through wavelengths in a vacuum, our brain is actively and predictively generating best guesses to make sense of the world. And these guesses are predicated on our foundational narratives. Our minds actively generate the world. In fact, according to the author of the book Subliminal, well, he suggests 95% of what goes on is beyond our awareness. In other words, it's in our subconscious and exerts a huge influence on our lives, beginning with making our lives and our realities possible. He suggests that even our most reasonable thoughts and actions mainly result from automatic unconscious processes. To the point where foundational narratives, our values, will seem visceral, instinctive, obvious, independent of new information, oftentimes as an analogy is compared to gravity. We find that foundational narratives can be undone, they can be unlearned, but it takes an immense amount of time and effort and will of the person that wants to change. An example is the Exit Sweden program over the last couple decades. This is a Swedish prison program that tries to find people that want to self-de-radicalize, self-demobilize from white supremacism and neo-Nazism. So former neo-Nazis that want to reinsert into society after they've paid their due, after their time in prison, assuming they're there having conducted or been uh, charged, uh, found guilty of a particular crime. And what they found in the Swedish government is that it takes years it takes years, it takes immense amount of effort, it's not successful sometimes, and it takes truly a village of medical health professionals, of mental health professionals, of social workers, business leaders, community leaders, family, and so much more. And also, again, the long-term effects, whether there's recidivism, is yet to be seen. So far, the program looks largely successful, we don't know exactly what we're going to see in five or ten years from now, of course. So, up to this point, we've talked about a particular kind of narrative known as a foundational narrative. This foundational narrative, as I said, they imprint on our subconscious. The subconscious often being the approximate target of information, persuasion, and influence campaigns. Not always the target, but often it is the target. That is, the subconscious literally at the individual level 
So at individual human brains, figuratively at the social level, having, for example, a so-called national subconscious. The subconscious has an outsized effect on our beliefs, on our logic, on our decision, and importantly, our actions. Foundational narratives can be important to our study of strategy and national security for three reasons. The first, as I said earlier, they describe information, persuasion, and influence campaigns, or warfare, if you will, at its most extreme. It defines much of power and warfare. Powers convincing people to follow them, to follow their narratives, their foundational beliefs, and abandon others. This is one way, for example, just one way, not necessarily the best way, and certainly not the only way, to analyze great power competition. Some scholars suggest that Russia wants to dismantle democratic and constitutional republic values to shore up their own centralized power in the form of Putin. Some scholars suggest that Beijing may wish to change or at least affect the internal order or excuse me, the international order from a rules-based and laws-based system to a middle king, kingdom-based system by peace, specifically a peace by means of the definition and viewpoints of the Chinese, or I should say the Communist Party of China. Some scholars suggest that Tehran may wish to export revolution ISIS fighters, Hezbollah fighters backed by Iran, of course, Taliban fighters may in fact fight and die for their own foundational narratives, for the way that they view the world and for they, the way that they want the world to exist. Foundational narratives are also secondly important because they are oftentimes a pivot point or a hook for many information, persuasion, and influence campaigns. They are a Trojan horse, a hook something you can gain traction for many of these types of campaigns, especially when you play into people's subconscious, into their biases. This is the elixir. This is the tonic that allows, if you will, the weaponized narrative to go down to have any kind of effect. More on that later. The third reason why foundational minerals may be important, it is one lens through which to help us better understand the international environment in general, what is known in strategic studies as international context. To understand the motivations and the commitments, for example, of our allies, our competitors, and adversaries. Think, for example, of a staff planning officer in Tehran today, someone devoted to revolutionary ideas and deeply religious. Before he even enters the room to begin strategy planning, what are his biases? What are his foundational narratives? How does he see Iran's place in the world? How dedicated is he? Is he willing to fight, to kill, to die? Is he willing to sacrifice his own men and women? Is he willing to sacrifice his family? What are his priorities? Is he blinded to the quote-unquote realities of international politics through a partial and biased lens? Well, yes, but how much so? And how so? Does he see, for example, Iran as literally surrounded by their seeming enemy, the U.S. military, with its presence in neighboring countries and at sea? Does he seek survival first and foremost? Or, for example, does he see himself as part of a rightful Persian empire, once lost but needs to be regained, to be regained? 
if not through force and conquest, then perhaps through influence, subversive, clandestine, and proxy warfare. Is this why he might recommend even more influence or attempted influence in the Arab capitals of Sana'a, Baghdad, Damascus, and Beirut? Does he see his embedded and dedicated duty to export Iran's revolutionary ideas? Is this why Iran continues to fight by, with, and through certain forces like the Houthis in Yemen, as well as conducting attacks and fighting themselves, that is, Iranian officers? Does he see a Cold War or political regional power competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Every move to increase regional influence and breathing space. Every move to deny Saudi Arabia influence and regional alliances. Or, for example, does he see Iran as the rightful intellectual and spiritual home, along with key cities and sites in Iraq, for a true religion that must prepare for the return of the Mahdi? Is this a spiritual quest for the soul of mankind to prepare for Armageddon, or is it all of the above? So thus far, we've talked about foundational narratives. Now I want to turn a little bit to just plain narratives. The reason that we use the word strategic narrative is that when we come into plenary, we will discuss narratives with regards to strategy and narratives at the strategic, global, or at least regional levels. But for now, I just want to discuss what a narrative is versus foundational narrative. Foundational narratives are akin to a tree's root system, what is underground and unseen, but vital for the life and health of the tree. We need to take into account how it is watered, the richness of the soil, and how these affect the overall health of this root system. Now, narratives, just plain narratives, sometimes called weaponized narratives in a time of warfare, or narratives as tool, tools in a time of relative peace and stability, are akin to the branches of the tree. This is what is potentially observable. The stronger the root system, that is, the stronger the foundational narratives, then the wider and stronger the branches, or the wider and stronger the narratives can reach. So once foundational narratives have been laid down and we have a social construct with a governing body, that governing body can use narratives to pursue in pursuit of their national interests, to protect, defend, and further their national interests. Specifically, the narrative is the core. It is the most important part. It is the starting point. It is the core of every information, influence, and persuasion campaign. So how do we define narrative? What is narrative? Well, unfortunately, according to Steve Corman, there are as many theories and definitions of narrative as there are theorists. This is hotly debated in all of the fine arts, in all of the humanities, such as history and philosophy and literature, in all of the social sciences, especially in the last three decades, and even in the sciences, whether it's the medical field of psychiatry or theoretical physics or even cosmology. To make matters more complex, the very concept of what a narrative is will differ from village to village and neighborhood to neighborhood throughout the world. However, over the last 2,000 years, 
in reference to all of the academic scholarly disciplines I described, there are four common themes. And this may become our starting point for a definition of narrative, something to be discussed and debated. These are four common things, themes to many definitions of narrative, not to all definitions of narrative. One, a narrative may reflect the identity of a community, nation, or people. It can comprise deep-seated ideologies, belief systems, history, and language. So number one is identity. Number two is meaning. It can offer meaning during developing events. Allows a community to gauge meaning of who they are, where they've been, where they're going. This may be especially important during a time of crisis, during a time of instability, during a time of disaster and warfare. A narrative may also comprise one or more stories. Stories can be told, they can be written, they can also simply be understood within a community, within a society, in which case it's a little more difficult to detect or to observe. If we are to study story, we want to study the content of the story, the storyteller, the storytelling craft, the means of transmission, how a story is received, and how people understand the story, how it may change their minds or affect their minds, and how it may affect or not affect their behavior. In addition to reflecting an identity, in addition to providing meaning, and in addition to comprising one or more stories, a strategic narrative may also be used with a purpose. So number four is purpose. Number one is identity. Number two is meaning. Number three is story. Number four is purpose. That purpose, as I said earlier, is to be that core nugget, to be that sort of sun at the center of a solar system that is your information, influence, or persuasion campaign. Unfortunately, there is no formula to either formulate, to find, and to amplify or enable a great narrative. There is no formula to perfectly analyze a great narrative. However, there are historically some common traits to his, considered by some historically successful narratives that we'll discuss in plenary. Thank you.